Hi, this is Stuart Hunter from the Roll Bicycle Company, and you're listening to the Entrepreneurs Podcast. That's right, you're listening to the Entrepreneurs Podcast. That's Entrepreneurs spelled entre like Spanish for between, pre like prefontaine, and nerds like the guys around the microphones. Speaking of guys around the microphones, I'm Daniel, the retailer. And I'm Kareem, the realtor. Kareem, what are we talking about today? We're talking about crowdfunding. The, the Kickstarter or the crowdfunding realm is, is, a, is an, in, an incredibly uh, um, difficult and, uh, and time-consuming and mesmerizing and exciting space for us. I think if we knew now what we... If we knew going in what we know now, I think we would do it uh, very differently. But um, one of the things I would say is, is that the the assumption that just because the product is great and just because the passion is there it doesn't mean that you have the audience and it doesn't mean that you have the uh the the guarantee of success i think like like most people before we really engaged in in developing our own kickstarter campaign we assumed that things really went viral virally and that's not the case um, there's a lot of work that goes into into planning a Kickstarter campaign. There's a lot of work that goes into getting publicity on that campaign. There's a lot of work and strategy uh, behind getting PR that will help drive traffic. And then there's a lot of bloody hard work in, in working with friends and family and contacts and associates in getting initial success that will help to, 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 to catapult the campaign towards ultimate funding. It's, it's pretty amazing. When you start looking at the, the statistics of, of crowdfunding and specifically the, the statistics of, of, uh, of Kickstarter, we found ourselves in the top 10% of all campaigns kind of funded on Kickstarter, which, uh, which, which was, was pretty kind of amazing for, for us and pretty exciting for us. But it also makes you realize just how few unicorns there are you know, out there. And, <laughs> and uh, there are only so, many, uh, only so many times people can get funded for potato salad. That was Stuart Hunter from Roll Bicycle Company, who just finished his Kickstarter campaign, describing the process a little bit. Daniel, you sat down with Stuart, and he was gracious enough to give you an interview. If you just wanted to give us a little bit about how that went. You know, it was great. We started talking about Stuart Hunter and Roll since the beginning of the podcast, our first episode, we were actually talking about the Kickstarter that it was going to take off. So I had discussed with Stuart the idea of after the Kickstarter finished, sort of come full circle and chat about his experience with that. And so luckily he was available and we made it happen the week after his Kickstarter finished. In fact, they funded over $50,000 worth of uh, crowdsourced funds from Kickstarter, which was terrific. They were hoping for 40000 And the last 10000 came really the last couple of days. Uh, it was really cool to see uh, the, sort of the arc of that. But he sat down with me. We had a great conversation. And uh, after we finished up, he was talking later about how there was probably 150 companies that had started trying to get him to buy their marketing uh, abilities and their expertise on how to get his Kickstarter better and better. And what it really came down to was just focusing on what he knew to be his base and where he would find them using Facebook marketing, asking friends to post about it, getting PR out there. But uh, really glad that he was able to have that successful campaign. We'll have more of his interview towards the end. All right. Since we're talking about crowdfunding, have you funded any uh, Kickstarter or Indiegogo campaigns? Yeah, you know, I was reading an article. There's apparently Huffington Post says by the end of 2016, there'll be over 2,000 
crowdfunding sites. Um, so Indiegogo and Kickstarter and GoFundMe are three of the biggest. And then there's ones that are sort of crowdfunded loans like Lending Tree or things like that. Um, but Kickstarter, Indiegogo, I have funded a couple. One of them was actually the Roll Kickstarter. Um, I didn't get a whole bike, but I backed it so that I could get a water bottle and a t-shirt. So that works out. Uh, so that's full disclosure. I did back the roll Kickstarter. Um, another one I did was the quickie, which I like to talk about in a little bit, but I think what's interesting about crowdfunding is it often attracts early adopters, people that are willing to sort of try something new out. That's really fun and techie. And my father, he will turn 68 in September, and he is a perfect example of these early adopters. He's one of these guys who, you know, started a photography company, and then he, so he's sort of his own entrepreneur that helped support our family, and then he was a professor at CCAD for a while, and he worked for 15 years as a Mac specialist at the Apple Store, and uh, in fact was the most experienced Mac specialist in the history of Apple around the world, which is pretty cool. But when you're a part-time employee on the sales floor, that's sort of what they call you. But he just started really early when Apple started uh, having retail stores and just was there until this past December was his last holiday with them. Throughout his whole life, he's always one of these guys who love gadgets, love new things. So I asked him the other day, Dad, how many of these campaigns have you backed? And he said, oh, I don't think that many. And then I asked him to bring it up on his phone and sign in to his Kickstarter Indiegogo. And then he started listing them off. How many did he have? Well, let's hear what he has to say. I always find it interesting supporting new things out there. So some of the things I've helped fund are Cardio Arm, iTrack, Max Pump, Case Remote Air, Nova Flash, iCloak, Soft, LumiCube, Plan 5, Tico, Meter, and the Field Skillet. Tell me a little bit about Max Pump. What is that, like a weightlifting yeah. supplement? I wish uh, that my father was uh, weightlifting. <laughs> He's had a lot of arthritis and stuff. But the Max Pump is actually a tiny little device um, that is battery-powered, but you plug it into anything that needs to be blown up, like an air mattress or whatever, and press a button, and it's like... Pfft, blows it up four times faster than anything else. That, so That would come in handy with camping. Yeah, let me tell you. He doesn't camp. I have no idea what he's going to use this for. He's got five bedrooms, so I'm not exactly sure what he needs an air mattress for at his house. <laughs> but it's clever and cool, and uh, I'm sure that it'll come in handy at some point. You know, I think speaking of sort of how you get this product to your customer. My father, a couple of the things he's still waiting on, he bought in April of 2015. It's now September of 2016, and he's still waiting for them, including that like field skillet and the meter. The meter is a Bluetooth-enabled meat thermometer because that's how important knowing how much your meat, you know, the temperature is. So it sounds like to him it's, it's more of just supporting new ideas. Yeah, and just because he loves the newest, coolest gadget, and he loves showing it off to people. And, you know, his doctor thinks the coolest thing in the world is that Quadrio arm, which is a blood pressure cuff that's Bluetooth-enabled, and it connects to an app on his phone. So you can show his doctor every single day that he's tested his blood pressure over the last two years, he has a record of it in his phone. Pretty cool. So there are companies, though, that don't deliver very quickly. We've talked about the field skillet and the meter, but also one of the challenges that I had with Quickie, Quickie's a local company, and I'll just sort of let them tell you the story of sort of what the Quickie is and where the idea came from. 
I'm Chris Hawker, inventor of the QuickKey and founder of Trident Design, an invention laboratory in Columbus, Ohio. The QuickKey was one of those inventions born out of necessity. I was constantly using my keys to open packages, which didn't work very well, and also using other items like credit cards and pennies to pry, scratch, slice, and unscrew things. Pocket knives and multi-tools are bulky and cumbersome, so I never wanted to carry one on me. So I set out to make a simple, effective, and compact solution. And what I arrived at was the idea for the QuickKey, a simple multi-tool the size and shape of a key. So that's the QuickKey. The idea is it looks like a key that you already are using to sort of slice open packages. And um, they raised $241,000, over 5,000% funded of what they were actually looking for. So this is the challenge. If when your campaign goes viral, and all of a sudden it becomes the most successful tool ever funded on Indiegogo in the history of that platform, how do you deliver it? And they were running into months and months of delays. And to the point that their manufacturer wrote an apology letter to the backers, literally saying, as you know, we've had terrible delays. To say that Trident is disappointed with the delays and with my company would be a huge understatement. They are totally frustrated and worried about their excellent reputation, which they've built over years of hard work. Was that also over that really happy, upbeat background music? Yes. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I think that w when we talk about conscious capitalism and the stakeholder model, we talk about lifting all boats and trying to sort of find a way to make everybody successful. It seems to me that they sort of threw their vendor under the bus there. I understand that it was their vendor's issue, some of those challenges, but as a part of the sort of organization that came up with it, we probably should have figured out whether they could deliver on it before you promised all your backers that it would happen. And then take ownership of that. They did send a lot of updates and a lot of apologies and they showed a lot of issues like here's the challenges we had, this is what we didn't like and this is what we did like, this wasn't sharp enough or these white spots showed up. And so I think that ultimately we talked about last episode about transparency being the only currency. They were very transparent about the whole process all the way through. And in fact, obviously being so successful, they've found a way to capitalize on that in addition to being sort of product house where you can test out ideas and they do 3D printing and uh, product modeling for you. They can also help run crowdfunding campaigns for you. And there's a number of them that they have uh, helped to create the Lightsaber Max, the Cap Off, the Carbon Flyer, and uh, in addition to the quickie, the couchlet. The couchlet is actually a really cool device because you can't always find where your plug is for your plug in your phone. It's this thing that sort of slides under your mattress and up the side comes these two little USB ports. So you can just kind of plug in your phone thing there. You don't have to look for the outlet around your... So you can have your phone with you at all times. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to talk to your spouse. <laughs> that would be weird. I know. Totally weird. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the quickie. And it's an example of a company who was totally unprepared for a 5,000% funded. And once you do that, how do you produce that? And then where's that money come from? Maybe you made $241,000, but it costs you $200,000 to deliver the product to the customer. So is crowdfunding really funding or is crowdfunding just sort of the validation of an idea and a marketing tool? Because I know people that have gone crowdfunding, raised, you know, $100,000 and 90000 of it they had already promised out in product or swag. So ultimately... They end up with $10,000 to run the business and fulfill 
But they went to a bank and said, okay, so you want to see that we have customers and here is, you know, 2,000 customers that have paid for pre-orders of this. And these are just early adopters. Once people know this product is out there, it's going to be that much more successful. And they use the crowdfunding as an example of the demand for their product in their business plan when they're presenting it to financers, whether it's lenders like a traditional bank or somewhere like the Economic Community Development Institute that does nonprofit microlending to local businesses. Those kind of companies want to see that you've got an audience already and that you're solving a problem and you can flesh a lot of those ideas out in a crowdfunding platform. So we went over finding your audience when it comes to crowdfunding. You really have to know who you're speaking to and and try to reach them in the most efficient way possible for you and the most convenient way possible for them. Your audience isn't necessarily the most savvy or seasoned investors. It's people who just want to help or they just feel inspired by your product or they really look forward to using your service. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when you look at Indiegogo or Kickstarter especially, ultimately the people that are funding are people that already know you, uh, unless your thing goes viral like the Quickie did or the Coolest Cooler. Did you remember that thing? No, but I remember the potato salad. Right, or a potato salad. And I mean, that guy's from Columbus. Did you try it? Was it good? No, he didn't make any. He didn't even make it, did he? No, he had a potato salad festival where he took all the money he made and he went and had this music festival and there were food trucks and they were giving away little cups of potato salad and it was very, and there was homage t-shirts for everybody. I, I remember when that was going on and we were all talking about it. Everyone was laughing about it. But you know what it did? It raised awareness to those services. Mm-hmm. I, I guarantee you a lot of people who were maybe working on something didn't even consider that this is a way or a direction that they can go to to fund that idea. Your audience, they are more or less doing this as a gesture of goodwill. All these people that you may know or not know are backing you. They're believing in you. But that's where the responsibility really lies on your shoulders to have a business plan. You have to always prepare. As an entrepreneur, you have to always be ready for the worst possible scenario. You have to have a plan for that. You can't just go in saying, everything's going to be great. I have my rose-colored glasses on, and this is all going to be, it's going to be a well-oiled machine. We're not going to have any issues with fulfilling these orders. The products are going to come out perfect. We're not going to have... You have to have room for error. Your funding partners typically call those contingencies. Tell me what your contingencies are or how much money are you going to have in a contingency budget for when things don't go the way you plan, especially when it comes to creating brick and mortar retail or a restaurant. You know, you may say, I need $100,000 for build out. Well, you better have $150,000 for build out and plan for a hundred because you ultimately have overages. You know, last episode, we talked about how Jenny's dealt with Listeria. Oh, my gosh. And we talked about how Chipotle dealt with their, um, I forget what the ingredient was. E. coli. In their Australian beef. In their barbacoa? I don't know. I think. But those are businesses that are already, they're thriving. Mm -hmm. These are businesses that have customers every day. They had a problem and they addressed it instead of trying to pretend like it didn't happen. But you are someone who's starting out. You're brand new. We don't know you. Most of the backers... At least half of them don't know you. They only know what you promised. They only know what they watched in the video. So if you come back and, and, and try to say, oh, hey, like here I am addressing the, the issues that I'm having, I can't commend you for this. this that, that's, the, that's the lowest expectation. Yeah. And I think that what's great about the interview we do with Stuart is there's a lot of great tips for entrepreneurs and how to avoid some pitfalls. And you kind of hear 
his story of how he got started and uh, sort of where it's going next. So we're going to play the rest of his interview here, and we'll see you on the flip side. And that's Stuart from Roll. So I'm here with Stuart Hunter, and he spent more than 15 years as creative director for marketing and advertising firms like Fitch and RPA. And in 2005, he took that entrepreneur leap and combined his passion for bikes and branding and opened a full-service bike retailer, Roll. And the Roll bike shops operate with an emphasis on service, perfect fit, and accessibility to all levels of cyclists. In the past 11 years, he's opened three shops in Central Ohio, and Stewart's most recent venture involves crowdsourcing more than $50,000 for a more vertically integrated model of retail. All this while raising a family. Pretty impressive, Stuart. Great, Daniel. Thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on and uh, great to talk to you. I know we've chatted in the past about your journey into retail. Can you give our audience your version of what compelled you to become an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think I'm just a lousy employee as, as part of the, the, the challenge. You know, I, I think I'm a, the product of an art school education, which uh, forces you to, to question everything. And, and I think for me, kind of when I was in consulting, the thing that really... I got a lot of fulfillment and a lot of joy from was the, the client work and helping solve problems and see opportunity and, and work directly with with uh, people to develop customer-centric concepts. So, so that was really kind of my spark into, into, into feeling like an entrepreneur. And then, then as I got back into riding, kind of really seeing the opportunity in the industry and in, in the bike industry to, to put some of that experience uh, into place and, and to develop something for ourselves. So it just felt like a, a very natural transition. I think the, the one of the joys of consulting is it's a very entrepreneurial environment because it's a very creative space and it's about creating uh, new ideas. You know, you mentioned consulting. And when I think of consulting, a lot of the challenge is that the sales cycle is so long, there's not enough doing. So for entrepreneurs, they're really motivated and passionate about what they're doing. It can be a challenging and frustrating path for their passion or purpose. When you think about starting a retail store, there's obviously a ton of doing that needs to get done. And uh, sort of you get to place your entrepreneurial spirit into something really concrete. When you think of entrepreneurs or people that were coming up when you were starting your business, were there any specific entrepreneurs that you admire, you look to for inspiration? I think we're looking looking back about uh, 10 years now from when we started uh, Roll, so it's hard to pinpoint exact entrepreneurs at that time, but I can tell you the entrepreneurial businesses that, are, that I most admire really start with, with a, a passionate founder and a founder that's passionate about the, the subject. So I think of guys like uh, David Chang and, and Mama Fuka, who, who clearly a passionate food guy that translated that passion for food into a very successful um, retail and restaurant empire that allows him to share that passion with others. So, so those, uh, those businesses that have a passion play uh, and people that have a passion play are, are particularly attractive um, to me. And, and I think uh, you can also uh, think about kind of brands like, you know, even TransferWise uh, out of Europe, which was developed by the, the founders of, of Skype, who, uh, who uh, launched a business that uh, allows people to, to, to wire funds and wire funds internationally, but do it at rates that were previously unavailable to the public. And uh, so there's a little bit of social justice involved in that as well, which kind of piques my interest. 
Yeah, I think that disruptive model really is important to finding success. You find something that might have been already done. In fact, look at bicycle shops. You have over 100 years of bicycle shops, mm -hmm. including the Wright brothers had their own bicycle yep. shop. Then they chose to do something else, yep. uh, not necessarily disruptive, but uh, just completely new altogether. So one of the challenges a lot of entrepreneurs face is when you get to a certain point and your company gets to a certain size, you can't be in every meeting or you can't be at every single store every day. Mm -hmm. So how do you connect your sort of entrepreneurial vision for what the business is supposed to be to all the decisions that are made down to the way we greet our customers or the way you sweep the floor? That that I think a constant challenge in in any business. It's but it really does come down to finding great people and finding people that share kind of culturally the same values as the business and the same outlook and the same end goal. And I think if we can kind of continue to find those people in any business to carry that that value system forward, then the business will always naturally evolve. The business will change. the The circumstances will change. The models will change. But if we can kind of focus on the values of the people in the business, then I think that's a great foundation to build from there. You know, on the podcast, we actually talk a lot about talent. Now that you have been doing this for 10, 11 years, do you have advice for our audience on how to attract, retain, and inspire your team or any team in uh, their own businesses? I think you, you have to approach it with an open mind. I think we uh, kind of, there's lots of great books and lots of great reading out there about kind of first get the right people on the bus and then find the role for them. And, and, and I think I would, I would certainly echo some of, some of that sentiment. What I will say is, is kind of when you meet people, meet them with, with an open mind and, and, and uh, don't necessarily look at resume and don't necessarily kind of start there. Certainly um, experience is, is one part of it, but really kind of aptitude and passion and fit is, is a much more important kind of indicator for me of success. Yeah, we talked about that on our last podcast and the way that patience, waiting for that right person and connecting making sure that they connect to that purpose or passion that you have for your business is more important than anything else. It is. And it's a hard thing to do as an entrepreneur and in a growing business. Some days you just need to get shit done, which means that you have to have people to do it. But uh, so having the discipline to make sure that you find the right people and get them into the right roles, but also being able to be disciplined enough as a business and as an entrepreneur to make sure that you have the right opportunity for that individual, which uh, which is a responsibility, I think, of the organization and of the entrepreneur. It's, you can hire great people, but if you don't have a great challenge for them, then very quickly the wheels can come off. So you have to you have to kind of own the responsibility to to to, to make sure that you have the opportunity for the individuals that you bring in. That's great. Well, those are a lot of great points. Let's go ahead and switch gears here and let's talk about Kickstarter. You just had a campaign fully funded and did this past weekend. You were looking for $40,000 in crowdfunds and actually got 50,000, the majority of those pre-order Founders Edition bikes. So tell us a little bit about the role Bicycle Company, what this new venture is, and how that crowdfunded cash is going to be used. Yeah, so Roll Bicycle Company is is really a new venture for us. Uh, we've had the stores for about 10 years, and, and we've had a lot of success in selling other people's products and, and, and brands. And so this is the first foray for us into developing our own kind of line of bikes. And it comes from from really spending a lot of time with customers 
in the last decade and, 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 and hearing a lot from them about what they're looking for, but also for us seeing an opportunity to, to, to create something that is very personal and personalized and built to order um, for, in, a, in a way that just doesn't exist in, in, in the marketplace right now. So, so we're excited about this idea of being able to, to create a fully custom bike for a customer in, in 48 hours and, and for around $700. So, so that, that's the, the product side of it is, 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 is exciting for me as, as well as the, the, the customer experience side. From a crowdfunding standpoint and from a Kickstarter standpoint, uh, we really we were looking for, for um, help um, from our customers in, in finishing out the last stages of development and tooling, specifically tooling on the bike, but also the development of the, the website and the, and the web engine that will allow us and allow our customers to build those bikes uh, on, on an online configurator uh, exactly how they would like. I think that'll be really successful. You think about where consumers and sort of what they want right now. And mm -hmm. it goes back to something I tell a lot of the entrepreneurs I work with, which is you can't spell customer without custom. Right. And if you can find a way to individualize your product in a way that excites people, that's really going to drive up demand. I, I think that's really the future of where we're going. And when you look at where it all started, I think you could say frozen yogurt started it all. <laughs> you get to pick your own flavor, add some gummy bears and sprinkles, and exactly. roll bicycle companies. Just it's just a version of that where you have to pick your own bike and then choose your gummy bears and sprinkles to go on. And yeah, you know, I, I think kind of we we toss the words up custom and personalized, and we use them interchangeably. But for me, I, I try to draw a distinction between the two because I think something that's custom is cool. But something that's personal or personalized has a passion imbued into it. And so we always try and make sure that just because we can make it different or customize, it doesn't mean that there's a value to it. So being able to create something that is personalized adds value, not just to the product, but to the experience for the customer. And, and that, I think, gives a customer a chance to, to, to celebrate their individuality, not just have something different. And so that's can I try to draw a distinction between those two words. That's a really important point. And when I think about how other retailers can take this model and run with it, they're really going to need to understand the difference between custom and personalized. And a lot of that is how they're going to inject the personality of their customer into it. And uh, personalization is sort of where everything's going. Exactly. So you think about it. When you, you, you walk into the coffee shop in the morning, you ask for your coffee the way that you like it, and it's a personal experience. And often it's, it's a very kind of intimate exchange between you and, and the barista or the person behind the counter that you see on a regular basis. And the, there's a relationship there. So how do you build those same kinds of, of personalized relationships into transactions which are online? Which is one of the things that we're grappling with right now is how do we how do we create that level of intimacy um, with with the Roll Bicycle Company as we develop and and finalize the website. Intimacy is the key word there, and in fact, I think when you look at crowdfunding platforms, you get a really intimate look at your customers, a really intimate look at your audience, especially because every interaction they have with your campaign, every email, every funder you get an email alert and constantly you're engaging with your audience it uh, definitely tells you a lot about the people who are backing you and the people who are funding you you know it's it's the the kickstarter or the crowdfunding realm is is a is an, in, an incredibly uh 
um, difficult and uh, and time consuming and mesmerizing and exciting space for us. I think if we knew now what we if we knew going in what we know now, I think we would do it uh, very differently. But one of the things I would say is the assumption that just because the product is great and just because the passion is there, it doesn't mean that you have the audience and it doesn't mean that you have the uh, the, the guarantee of success. I think. Like, like most people, before we really engaged in, in developing our own Kickstarter campaign, we assumed that things really went viral, virally, and that's not the case. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into planning a Kickstarter campaign. There's a lot of work that goes into getting publicity on that campaign. There's a lot of work and strategy uh, behind getting PR that will help drive traffic. And then there's a lot of bloody hard work in, in working with friends and family and contacts and associates in getting initial success that will help to catapult the campaign towards ultimate funding. It's, it's pretty amazing. When you start looking at the statistics of crowdfunding and specifically the, the statistics of, of Kickstarter, we found ourselves in the top 10% of all campaigns kind of funded on Kickstarter, which, uh, which was pretty kind of amazing for, for us and pretty exciting for us. But it also makes you realize just how few unicorns there are you know, out there. And, <laughs> and uh, there are only so, many, uh, only so many times people can get funded for potato salad. But I often think about how all these people think crowdfunding is such a great idea and ultimately they create all these reward levels to try and uh, engage their uh, fans to a point where they're going to get excited about whatever that reward is. And then they get caught realizing that ultimately they're going to have to deliver on all these promises and that's going to cost money. So when you promise people that you're going to build so many widgets uh, with their crowdfunding money, technically you don't have that money to really start your business anymore because you're using it to pay for these rewards. But there's a lot of thoughts that go into things like that. One of the things that I think about with existing businesses is what are those current pain points? When you think about your own business, Stuart, what do you think is that current pain point that's really driving the next iteration of what you're doing? And the pain point for us continues to be getting the word out. It's not really a Kickstarter question as much as it is an e-commerce question. And I think kind of for us, we've had a successful business and brick and mortar business and brick and mortar reseller with, with a web presence, but essentially a brick and mortar business for the last 10 years. And, and, and one of the dynamics of, of, of brick and mortar is real estate. And one of the, the challenges of real estate is making sure that you're in a, in a, in a location where people see you and can find you and, and can engage with you physically. And, and there are rules to that in terms of finding adjacencies and like businesses and high traffic streets and the pretty well-known rules. It's vastly different when you build an e-com business and when you look online because you build in your store in space. And it may as well be outer space because it's in a vacuum. And so attracting traffic and attracting people and telling the story and and getting the word out is is a very different dynamic in the e-com space than it is in, in, in traditional retail space. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of entrepreneurs who are particularly making that move from, from brick and mortar into e-com kind of underestimate. And I know it's something that, that we've had to learn kind of very, very kind of quickly is the, the different dynamics of that. It's interesting to see those dynamics in reverse too. I mean, there are companies like Warby Parker who started as an e-commerce business and did a great job developing a consumer base that way and then have been moving into these beautiful sort of designed studio retail spaces mm -hmm. and trying to uh, sort of get that brick and mortar experience that direction as well. 
It's a very different approach to retail. And Warby Parker is a, a great example. It's a brand that we admire and look to, to a lot. And you see what they're doing with brick and mortar retail. And they really are exhibition or, or event spaces rather than traditional retail. They, they, uh, I don't know the, uh, the figures of what they contribute to the bottom line, but I would argue um, that uh, it's as much a marketing expense as it is truly a, a, a revenue builder. And, and I think... I think that's a great thing because I think it, it's part of a, a broader arsenal of tools and opportunities for a brand to talk to a customer base. And, and, and I think that's to be celebrated. Yeah, I think the brick and mortar locations have always been a marketing tool at the base level, just the way your customers interact with your brand. And you've talked about how you could turn your own retail spaces into an even more explicit model of how the interaction and engagement happens by almost going down that sort of designed studio or bike studio route. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, the, I think the dynamics of, of the retail space uh, changes dramatically and will continue to change dramatically. I think for us, as I look ahead, again, I look at our current stores and they're 5,000 square foot warehouses of product that need to house that product in a, in, a, in, a, in a store location goes away, which means that we have space and time and real estate that we're able to devote to other things and other ways to interact and other ways to, to serve the customer. So our, the dynamics of our store changes when they no longer have to be product warehouses. It's important to know that you don't have to get rid of those thousand square foot stock rooms or warehouses, but how do you find a way to use that space to your customer's advantage? Exactly, exactly. So it allows you to build out new services and new opportunities to better serve that customer because as brands become more fluent in operating across channels and, and uh, become less channel specific, we get to see how the experiences that they create become more... Uh, encompassing and, and address the needs of the customer and consumer at different points in their life. That's great. So now you have this retail background, you're getting into the manufacturing and supply chain experience. If you had some advice for another aspiring retail entrepreneur, what would it be? And don't say don't do it. You know, I, I would say absolutely bloody do it. If you feel like you have an opportunity and if you feel that that opportunity also comes from an unmet need, whether that's a, a, a known or unknown latent need um, that you, you, you perceive to be out there, then I think go for it. I think be, just be cautious and be careful of making too many assumptions. Be cautious and careful of, of assuming that your initial idea is the idea that will bring success. And be prepared to test and be prepared to change and be prepared to listen and uh, be prepared to sweat and, and work hard and, and be prepared to have some fun. And, and, but uh, but I, I would encourage anybody that has the, the opportunity and the, the, the mental fortitude to, uh, to, to do it, to, to do it. And by mental fortitude, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a roller coaster. It really is an incredibly uh, emotionally um, challenging and exciting and depressing and wild ride, but it's a lot of fun. So now you've talked about this fortitude that you need as an entrepreneur. You talked about this roller coaster. And then you bring other people into it. When you think about it's not just you going on this roller coaster. It really is your whole family. And you don't just have one entrepreneur in your family. Your wife is also an entrepreneur. She owns Piccadilly mm -hmm. right on Main Street in Bexley. They always have events going on. It's a great space for parents and kids to enjoy a space together. 
But now you have two entrepreneurs in the family, all going through those, those roller coasters, maybe on different roller coasters, and you have two kids. So how do you satisfy all your priorities? Uh, you never satisfy all your priorities. I think for us, though, we made a decision very early on that we don't separate our, our work life and our, our home life. We just have our life. So our kids are very exposed to what Alison and I do on a daily basis, and they're included in that, and they're included in the madness of the schedules, and the they're included in, in the travel that goes along with that. And, and so for us, we've, we've adopted a way of life which is incredibly stressful sometimes. But by not trying to make that distinction or, or division between work time and home time and just having lifetime, I think it's, uh, it's, it's been a dynamic that's worked really well for, for us. That balance that we talk about in terms of life and work, I think is an important point because so many people keep talking about how they separate their life from their work. But ultimately, if you're super passionate about it and you've got all this, all your energy built up around your work, then you go home, you're still that person. You're still living that work. And so ultimately, it's not really a separation, uh, but it's how do you connect it to everything that you're doing? I think that's absolutely right. I think it's important for me, for my kids to see the stuff that I'm excited about and the stuff that I do and and, and the same way that I share in the stuff that they're excited about and the stuff that they do. And, and so being able to have the flexibility to be able to do that. I think that's one of the unspoken of benefits of being an entrepreneur and being a business owner. I, I joke constantly with people who, uh, who ask me that, that I still work 80 hours a week, but the, the benefit is I get to decide which 80 it is. So I have the flexibility around my schedule and time uh, in order to be able to, to make uh, some of those priority decisions, and, 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 and it works pretty well. So you mentioned all these things you have going on. Do the boys see this? Do they have the next big idea? Are they going to be entrepreneurs too? <laughs> you know, both boys are very different personalities. So I'm not sure whether, whether they'll be entrepreneurs by, by osmosis. You know, I always, uh, I think I treat my business life like I treat their sports. I, I try not to force them to be bike riders just because I am. I want them to be able to find their own passions and, and their own way. And and uh, hopefully, uh, because of the, the experiences and the insights that they've had, they'll be able to, to make a decision whether this is something that's exciting for them or not. Um, I have no demands that either of them then join me in, in the businesses that I'm involved in personally. Um, but I do hope it inspires them to, to, to really find their own personal passions and pursue them. So now it's time to ask you the final question, which is, if you were offered that magic dollar amount, to sell your business and get out of the bike business, what's that next business you'd start and why? I'm not going to tell you that on air because... <laughs> <laughs> everyone's going to take it. It's already in the back of the sketchbook. Now, for, for me, uh, there's, there's no immediate end to, to what we're doing with, with role. I think for as I look at role as a business, the ultimate reason that we do this is, is, for me, it's a very simple one, which bikes change lives. And I see the, the impact that... that the bicycles have kind of socially on creating creating connections between people, and so I think we've got a lot of runtime with with roll, and and I think that those goals and those values extend beyond just bikes. So as a business, I think that there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of a lot of other businesses around that concept, which we're interested in in pursuing, and particularly as a as a parent as well, you learn you learn some things that uh, that. You wish you knew beforehand, and 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 you have some of the same levels of frustrations, and uh, and see the same opportunities that we saw initially with bikes and some of the other categories around being a parent. You mentioned something really interesting about 
bikes change lives. In last episode, we talked about purpose. Would you say that changing lives through bikes is the purpose of role? I think for me, yeah, it's certainly the foundation of what we do. And it's the reason that we started the business. When I, when I got back into riding, um, it not only changed my career, but it changed my health, it changed my social time, and, and it allowed me to, to become a much more kind of grounded and I think connected individual. And I see the, the effect, the, the positive effects that it's had on my own life. And then through the stores, we see the positive effects that it has on other people's lives. People very rarely ride a bike for the sake of riding a bike. And so, so people's motivations vary. And whether that's time with their family or, or to become a little healthier or, or to, to take a mental break or to spend time with their, their friends, kind of those, those individual motivations are, are what's exciting to me. It happens to be delivered through riding in within role right now but creating those community connections and individual connections are really really important and you see that i see that every day in our business but you also see that in in organizations like pelotonia who who have used bikes to create those connections not just between individuals but connecting individuals to a greater cause and a greater passion that's become a, a wonderful movement in in the community here and so i think there's uh, i think passion and purpose have to lead the way in business and then profits and success follow. Stuart, those are some great insights and I think we can really wrap it up here. We are so grateful to have you on our show as one of the first interviews we've ever done. But do you have any final thoughts for your audience? Um, thanks for, for having me. Uh, I really enjoy the Entrepreneurs Podcast. So it's uh, it's a great pleasure to be, to be on and, and to be featured. And uh, and uh, I would welcome, if anybody has any specific questions that I can help answer, then kind of please reach out to me and I'll do my best. All right. So if they want to reach out to you, Stuart, what's a great way to connect with you? Uh, get me over email. My email is Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, at roll-online.com. Thank you so much to Stuart Hunter and the team at Roll uh, for being so hospitable. You can reach them all the time online at roll-online.com. And this has been the Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Daniel, the retailer. And I'm Kareem, the realtor. Join us next week as our guests are Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, and Michael Bloomberg. Wait, isn't it Oprah's next week? Oh, well, she hasn't responded to her email yet. Nobody has. See you soon. <laughs>